Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Most of the content that, that we now put on Instagram is actually customer-created. Hey, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to perform quality assurance on your products as your business grows, the benefits of moving from part-time workers to full-time employees, and how to encourage your customers to create your social media content for you. Today, I'm joined by Adam Klosoviak from Close Guitars. Close Guitars makes the coolest, durable, comfortable, and portable carbon fiber guitars and ukuleles. It was started in 2015 and based out of Provo, Utah. Welcome, Adam. Hey, thank you. Yeah, so tell us a little more about your products and what makes it different than what's out there in the market. Yeah, so we started with a carbon fiber travel guitar, and that's what we've been focusing on for almost the first three years, um, just, just short of three years. And now we have a ukulele and a full-size guitar, but uh, I'll get to that after. So, so yeah, what differentiates our product is mainly the carbon fiber aspect. So as most people assume, most guitars are made out of wood, and which is great. Wooden instruments sound fantastic. However, when it comes to traveling with your instrument or having an instrument that's durable, uh, wood is not the greatest material just because for a wooden guitar to sound good, you inherently have to have fairly fragile wood. It has to be thin so that it can resonate well. And that creates some issues with, uh, for example, when temperature or humidity changes arise, uh, your instrument can bend uh, or or change shape um, with those changes. Uh, If you go camping and you knock the guitar aside, it can get dented or cracked very easily. So so carbon fiber solves all those issues. It's a material that's used in high-end sports equipment. Uh, it's used to make airplanes. Uh, if, if people cycle, you know, many uh, professional bikes are now made out of carbon fiber. That's been happening for many, many years. Uh, so it's a really good material to use for guitars. However, Traditionally, it's been very expensive in guitars, and so we've kind of introduced a new innovative manufacturing method, which allows us to be about half the price point of other carbon fiber guitars out there. Uh, so that's kind of the the unique aspect of it. Mm. So I'm assuming this uh, unique manufacturing style—that's like a, a trade secret that that you guys have. How did you come across? Like, how did you? approach designing you know go into too much details if you don't want to but how did you approach this uh, process of figuring out how to make this affordable yeah totally so so some of the process is a trade secret but some of it is actually quite obvious and and we market it so um so most carbon fiber guitars are full carbon fiber so the main three components of a guitar are the neck the soundboard, which is the flat panel in the front and the body in the back. And all these carbon fiber guitar makers use 100% carbon fiber for all three parts. And we realized, you know, the most important part of a guitar is the soundboard because that's what flexes and creates the sound. So that has to be durable. That has to be protected. 
Um, the body is, is the biggest part, so that has to be protected as well, and that's attached to the soundboard. But the neck, a wooden neck is, you know, it's like a baseball bat. It's, quite, it's pretty thick, so it's already quite durable. And it's also the most intricate shape. Um, there are many angles on it, a lot of different contours that are difficult to shape with carbon fiber. So our approach was, let's make the sound producing part, the most important part of the guitar out of the durable material, because that solves the pain point. And let's keep everything else out of wood. So the neck and the bridge, which is already a very established product that is quite cheap to source. And, and let's just start with that kind of hybrid design and go from there. And so the, the body essentially is a bowl, which is quite easy to manufacture, and the soundboard is a flat panel, which is very easy to manufacture. And so that, that allowed us to reduce the number of expensive parts significantly. And then uh, we also reduced the number of parts within the body and soundboard um, quite a bit as well. So, so simplicity is sort of our mantra when it comes to design, and, and that's allowed us to drop the price point. So you're basically creating a brand new new product or a brand new way to to create uh, an existing old product. So I'm assuming that there was a lot of testing involved during the, this process. It's not it looks like a, a product. Well, the price point is is obviously a higher price point. I'm assuming it's also probably costly for you to manufacture as well. So you want to get this right. How were you able to test? How how was the development process between testing the product with customers and then going back to the manufacturers to make tweaks to make sure that it was actually you're creating a product that the customers wanted. Oh yeah, so we so there are a couple couple of different tools that we used. Um, my so my brother and I started the company together, and uh, before we started the company, my brother had actually made this first guitar for a school project, and uh, this was while he was still uh, a senior in college, and. He made the first one and, and he kind of showed it to everyone in his class, showed it to all of his friends. And so he got feedback that way. So the initial feedback stage was sort of family and friends. And, and then I was visiting him for a ski trip. He lived in Utah at the time. I lived in New Jersey. And, uh, and so we started thinking about it as, as, a, as a company rather than just you know, a project for fun. And, and then that's kind of where the market feedback came back. So uh, we looked at what, it, what currently exists, what doesn't exist, and we realized there's no affordable carbon fiber travel guitar or, or no affordable durable guitar. Um, and so that was kind of the market feedback. And then I would say the customer feedback, the last stage, came in our first Kickstarter. So... After getting the family, friends, and market feedback, we came up with our MVP, and we launched a Kickstarter. Uh, this was June of 2015, so just short of three years ago. And we got our first 70 customers there. And you know, these people, as most people find with Kickstarter, were the most willing to give us feedback even before they got the product. Um, you know, many people asked, "Hey, are you going to add an electric pickup?" Uh, hey, can you make this lefty? And then we realized, oh yeah, there are lefty guitar players. <laughs> um, you know, so things like that started coming up, and that, and because we were manufacturing everything ourselves at first, we were able to incorporate those changes quite easily. Um, and so, yeah, those are kind of the three stages, I'd say. 
Got it. So there was already a, a market out there for a carbon fiber guitar. So you knew that there was demand for it, but it was just way more expensive than what most people could afford. So you already knew that there was a market there. And then in terms of trying to get the customers to to be interested in your particular product, you launched a crowdfunding campaign, uh, which which was a, a success, it sounded like. Now, you mentioned that you're manufacturing the products yourself. Like, what does that mean? Like, Are you guys like guitar makers? Like, Are you doing this in your garage? Like, how are you able to create those guitars uh, early on? So when we first started, Ian made, uh, that's my brother, Ian made the first guitar just on campus in the school labs. He was a mechanical engineer. And, and so he used those facilities to make the first one. Um, you know, he bought the neck from a pawn shop, uh, made the carbon fiber parts himself. And, and then we, we won a summer accelerator at Princeton University. Uh, that was that first summer of 2015. And so we were there for 10 weeks and we, we started manufacturing them in the dorm, which turned out to not be allowed. So uh, that, that operation actually got shut down uh, pretty quickly. And, and we found a warehouse in, uh, in Provo where Ian went to school. And, and yeah, with this warehouse, you know, we had a lot of room. Uh, we, we knew all the production that had to happen and we just started iterating and uh, the goal eventually is to outsource most of the part production, but to always remain the assemblers. Because when it comes to a guitar, when you pick up a guitar, um, when, you, when you pick it up and you say, wow, this feels amazing, usually that effect is produced in the last hour of the production of that guitar. So action is the name for the height of the strings between the strings and the fretboard. Uh, usually when people don't like the feel of a guitar, it means the action is way too high. And so it hurts their fingers to play. Uh, so making sure that action is just right, making sure all the frets are very smooth and level. Uh, and we always want to control that because that is really the first impression that someone gets with a guitar. But as far as scaling goes, uh, outsourcing part production is the wiser move for us. That, that's, I think that's a, a very valuable skill to be able to understand what you can outsource and what you need to keep in-house. How were you able to determine, the, how were you able to differentiate the, the two different tasks? Like, How did you know that the assembly should be done in-house versus uh, the part production done uh, outsourced? So I think usually it starts with the question, what is the most important to a customer? And what would we never, what are we not willing to compromise on ever? Um, and so the answer for us is the, the feel of the guitar has to be, has to be correct. Um, and so for us, that means that we, we would like to see each guitar before it gets shipped out. So that sort of rules out, you know, third party logistic companies where, you know, we'd have it made somewhere and we wouldn't even see it before it gets to a customer. Um, and then it gets to, you know, like the production of the neck. Um, we could do it ourselves, uh, but if, if we had to double our order in a month, then that would mean we'd have to hire more employees. So we'd have to recruit, we'd have to interview, uh, we'd have to hire, we'd have to train. It'd be quite, quite a process. And so it'd be tricky to scale. Whereas, um, if we have a supplier that 
produces 100,000 necks a month for many different guitar companies, then us doubling 1,000 to 2,000 isn't a problem at all for them. So that question is sort of um, what what part in our process would be very difficult to scale, and does that impact the other question? Uh, does that really impact the user experience if we make it or if they make it? Um, so I think balancing between those two of being forward-looking and thinking, how can I scale this effectively without compromising our brand quality is really the way to answer that question. Mm. Now, you mentioned that you want to see every one of your products before it goes out. You want to get your hands on it. You want to make sure it's something you want to put out there. How do you scale that part of it? What, what's the operation like to make sure that you guys are able to do some quality assurance on each product before it goes out? Right. So we have. So now we have one bigger warehouse. Uh, we expanded about a year ago. Um, and the, the assembly process sort of snakes around the warehouse. So it starts with um, combining many of the parts together, so sandboard to body to neck. And the final step is uh, what we call final inspection. And uh, it's just a desk where we have uh, one of our employees who is most knowledgeable on all parts of the guitar. And he goes through a checklist and goes through each part of the guitar, makes sure that this is correct, uh, that that's correct. And, and then once it passes his approval, it goes onto the, you know, the final inspected cart. And then that goes to the packaging station. And we have, uh, we, tr we try to quantify our manufacturing as much as possible. Uh, so for the final inspection, we have a Google survey that we've, an internal Google survey that we've developed uh, so the checklist is actually going through this Google survey and whenever we have issues, for example, let's say there's a scratch on the neck that shouldn't be there. Um, we check that box. And then when we look at the data of that survey, we see, oh, this week we had 10 scratches on the neck that, that must indicate that there's something wrong, um, in one of the processes because something is getting scratched that it shouldn't. So we start analyzing where could that scratch be being produced? Uh, is it our supplier? Is it us? If it's us, what station? And then once we identify where it's happening, we try to find a solution. For example, putting uh, plastic ceram wrap on the neck as it goes around that, that prevents all mistakes from happening. So, so final inspection is kind of the end point, but it gives feedback to all the other parts in the manufacturing process. I love that. I love that you actually try to improve the, the manufacturing process. I think a lot of times when people do uh, add in quality assurance, it's just a matter of, okay, this product is going to pass the filter, so let's just remove it, but then it doesn't send that feedback back to try to avoid having those issues in the first place. So now when someone is hired for that position, that, that desk that you're talking about, if someone else out there is listening, wants to have someone out, uh, someone that does a quality assurance for their product, what is that first day? Like, how do you begin to teach them how to uh, check for check the product and ensure that it is of a quality that you, you want? So we have, uh, so we've never hired for that position in particular externally. Um, the way we train almost all of our employees, and we have 15 manufacturing employees now, um, is everyone starts with one task, and we have we have a training program that uh, that they receive for that task. Uh, we have a video for the task. We have a written checklist. 
And, and there's also an instructor that walks through, um, the person, the new person, um, on how to learn that task. And, and they quickly become the master of that task and they quickly have the sole responsibility for all those parts. So we've broken down the process of building into just over a hundred different steps. Some steps take five minutes, some take 30 minutes and, and yeah, each person progresses through these different tasks and eventually they might know 20 to 50 tasks. Um, some of the employees that have been with us the longest, they've cycled through almost all of them. And so when we hire for, or when we choose a person for the final inspection stage, that person typically has many tasks under their belt because they understand what they're looking at in the final inspection phase. And they're not just looking okay, I'm trying to see if there's a scratch. Rather, they're, they're thinking, so the neck is most processed in these three steps. And so if I'm seeing this here, that means that's the first place I should look. And, and they understand how the guitar came together. And so they're, they're able to very effectively inspect and also provide feedback. Um, and so, yeah, so we usually have people that have a little bit more experience within the company get to that position uh, rather than hiring someone uh cold off the bat. So these are, are these like shared employees with other people that need assembly or are they solely focused on close guitars? Uh, just close guitars. Yeah. Not everyone is full-time. We have many, uh, part-time as well. Uh, we, we employ many college students who look for a 20 hour, uh, per week jobs. Uh, we're moving towards more of a full-time, uh, employee focus, but in the very beginning, um, you know, the labor pool is much more available with, with college students and it is definitely a bit more affordable too, which, um, being a very lean startup, we always appreciate that. What, what are your thoughts on that transition going from a, a part-time, uh, workforce to more of a full-time workforce and what kind of benefits come with that for, for your company? The main benefit I would say is regularity. Um, in scheduling. So that's one big benefit. So it's, it's quite difficult to run an assembly line when you have, uh, at our peak, we've had 21 employees. Uh, when you have 21, mostly part-time employees and you're trying to pump out products that have deadlines and you have to schedule like, okay, this person's coming from 4 PM to 6 PM and he's doing this step. And then the next step builds off of that step, but this person's not coming until two days from now at 11 in the morning. You know, it, it sort of becomes of this logistical nightmare. Um, so to have a core team that's smaller, that is there all the time and can be robust in terms of switching tasks as demand fluctuates, that is very, very useful. Um, another, another benefit is if someone's there full time, for a longer period of time, their experience just builds up and that really helps with quality control. Uh, that experience starts, uh, diminishing error rates. And, and so th there's a big advantage there too. Makes sense. So you mentioned uh, something in our, in our pre-interview, which was about how you're able to apply a successful e-commerce approach that's different than, or very different than the traditional guitar industry. Can you speak more about this? Like, how does the traditional guitar industry approach e-commerce or retail in general? How, how do you guys try to approach it? So when we were first starting, um, you know, we had this 
innovative guitar, quote unquote. But if you take a step back and look at our company at a high level, you would say, oh yeah, they make, they make an interesting guitar, but it's still just a guitar. So in the beginning, we were thinking, how could we further differentiate ourselves? How can we be different so that when someone sees our guitar, they don't think, oh, this is just another guitar. And we realized that most guitar companies, their approach is, um, let's make a guitar and then try to get into Guitar Center as fast as possible because that's where people buy guitars and that's kind of the lowest effort uh, in terms of getting your brand out in front of customers. Um, and so around when we were starting 2015, the, the buzzwords in e-commerce were kind of Casper Mattresses, uh, Warby Parker, mm-hmm. um, Bonobos. So direct they to were, consumer. Right, direct to consumer. And so they were taking a product that is very physical that people usually want to try on, touch, feel, smell, um, and they were selling it online and it was working really well. And so, so we thought, why not try the same thing with guitars? Most people really aren't taking that approach, um, to remain direct to consumer. And, and so that's kind of what we started honing in on. And and that led us to another, uh, another strategy that was very different than what other guitar companies did. And that was namely producing marketing videos that were very sort of funny and eye catching and not really traditional guitar. So to give you an example, um, we came out with a YouTube video of me golfing with one of our guitars and the, the inspiration came from blend tech. Um, are you familiar with that company? Yeah. Well, the blend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so they have a blender, right? They blend these iPhones and everyone's just like, Oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, but it's hilarious and it, and it catches views and people love it. They share it, they spread it. And so we were thinking, okay, our guitar is durable. We can either tell people it's durable or we can show them it's durable in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would never see Martin guitars or Taylor guitars taking one of their guitars and, you know, hitting a golf ball with it. That'd be such a brand no, no for them. Mm-hmm. But for us, we didn't have a brand when we were starting. We were we were essentially nobody, so we could do anything. Uh, we didn't have anything to damage. Um, so so that's kind of what we started on the marketing side. So we started producing these these funny videos and releasing them. And you know, the golf one almost got three million views that first summer. And that that was great top of the funnel marketing, and that really fueled our desire to remain direct-to-consumer for a long time. So replicating that in-store experience by having amazing demos with our guitars, uh, amazing images, high-resolution high images, a good Instagram, good Facebook, um, a blog. Reviews are key. Having We now have hundreds of five-star reviews. And, and oftentimes when I'm talking to customers, uh, they'll say something along the lines of, yeah, the reviews are great. I'm really looking forward to it. So that builds a lot of credibility. Um, and I really haven't seen many other guitars taking this route. Uh, I, and I think it, it's definitely risky um, going direct to consumer. I still think that most guitar sales do happen in physical retail. And physical retail is on our horizon. Um, we're actually partnering with a store called Beta, 
um, which has been labeled as the Shopify of physical retail. Um, and we're launching with five of their stores in three weeks. And, um, and so that's, that'll be our first test in physical retail to see, uh, what this guitar does when it's in, in, in front of people and in their hands. Yeah, I think I think even if you are not currently in physical retail, just having that online presence will certainly help once you do transition into physical retail. So these uh, videos that you are producing, how many videos are we talking about? How how, how often were you were you putting out videos, or, and are you still putting out videos today? So we made um, that first summer. We made the most of them, and uh, so we, let's see, we made a golfing video. We went kayaking with the guitars. We played tennis. Uh, we played baseball with it. <laughs> um, but we, the goal wasn't to always keep making these videos every week. So we only made a handful, less than 10. Um, the goal is to have that be the initial funnel, uh, the initial kind of get someone's attention and then mm -hmm. remarket to them with a demo showing, Hey, okay. The guitar is durable. You saw this funny ad but it actually sounds amazing. People love it. It feels great. And it's unique for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, so that was kind of the strategy there. And now we're moving more into uh, really showing that the brand is high quality. Um, but we do still use those clips. Um, our, our latest effort on that front was actually with our ukulele. We, we designed a durability test series. So um, we, we wanted to break our carbon fiber ukulele because we wanted to see how durable is it. And a lot of people ask us that question. So we first hit it with a metal hammer and then we stood on it, um, about 250 pounds, two people together stood on it. Uh, we then dropped a 30 pound cinder block on it from six feet. And then we ran it over with a Prius and it survived all those tests. Wow. Uh, and it only broke when we ran it over with that Toyota 4Runner. Uh, but yeah, those videos were definitely captivating. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I think that what you're going, what you're going for, is just having this kind of evergreen content, and it's certainly still working to this day to get people into, uh, or into your brand's universe for them to first hear about it. Uh, and were, were all of these videos done in house? You hire a company to help you produce them. We do do them in-house, yeah. So uh, one of our other co-founders who is, uh, we brought on as a co-founder later, uh, he, uh, he was excellent at video production. That was kind of his, his side passion. And, and so he, most of the videos uh, you see on, on Close Guitars are produced by him. Uh, so Jacob Sheffield is his name. And, and yeah, so we produced them in-house, which gave us a lot of flexibility in terms of iterating, tweaking. Uh, and that was, and that was really, really essential to the early stages of the company. Hmm. So this, this, uh, 3 million YouTube views over just a few months for one of your, your videos. How do you get the ball rolling on a video like that? How do you even kickstart, I guess, the, the virality? So those views were actually on Facebook. Um, and, you know, virality, everyone an analyzes virality. And I think the conclusion most people come to is you can sort of engineer virality to a certain degree. You know, if you produce a video and then release it with some partners all at the same time and coordinate, um, 
you can ensure maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of views, but to get to the million stage, it's, it's a big luck component. Um, I'd love to be able to say, oh, you know, we did these 10 things and if you do this, then it will produce the same result. But, um, it was kind of lucky to be honest. I mean, we released it, we put some money behind it. Um, I had a few friends who were working at Facebook and they had, uh, some Facebook ad credit vouchers because at that early stage we had, you know, we didn't have any money. So we were trying to find resources wherever we could. And, and only an $800 ad spend, uh, got us almost those 3 million views. Um, it was just a very share worthy video. It was, it was under a minute long. It was really funny. It was released in the fall, which was timed well with golfing season, uh, which is wrapping up. So it was kind of relevant to the to the time. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. that's kind of what happened. Were you able? Have you been able to to replicate the success? We actually haven't. No, we've uh, we've tried, um, and we've gotten some some videos to have half a million views after that. Um, but most of those videos had much more ad spend behind it. Uh, and I think it's also important to note that even in the, in the last three years, the Facebook algorithm has changed much, uh, very much in terms of, uh, what gets shared, what can go viral in the newsfeed and all that. So, um, I think virality is great, but it's something that you can't count on, uh, because it's not really sustainable. It can... It can give you these uh, these pushes that will help you know for a week or a month, but in terms of building a sustainable business, I think it's much more effective to think about uh, what can you do that's regular and stable and predictable, and then now and then focus on maybe a viral video attempt and, and see if that can take off. Mm -hmm. So, what does that mean for you guys today in terms of the the path into the top of the funnel? You know, previously, or maybe even to this day, was was that video? But then, when you want more regular traffic coming into the top of the funnel, what where do you focus your attention? So, I think one channel that's very good for that specifically is AdWords. So, AdWords is more because it's keyword based and you can find customers that are looking for that exact keyword. Um, that's a source of traffic that, that is very predictable. Um, and so we're transitioning into more Google AdWords spend as we become more mature. For example, if someone searches travel guitar, we absolutely want to be there uh, at the top result. Um, we're still doing a lot of Facebook ads. Uh, we actually are still doing crowdfunding. So we, um, for the longest time, I thought crowdfunding is kind of an early stage company type of activity and we need to move away from it as fast as possible to become, you know, a sustainable Shopify site. But over time, I've realized that I think product launches in general, and you see this with some companies that are very mature, um, they still release their products over crowdfunding. Um, and so, so we still, we still do that. We've done six Kickstarters until now. And, uh, and with Kickstarter, Facebook advertising works much better than Google AdWords. So that's, that's kind of the channel we use, um, for crowdfunding. And then, uh, you know, regularly reaching out to blogs. Um, we come out with regular YouTube videos, 
um, you know, regular Instagram posting. So I think looking at a bunch of different platforms and figuring out how can we create content regularly that will keep people coming back, but also when we get a new user onto that channel, so a, a new follower on Instagram, uh, they'll remain a follower and they'll keep coming back to their feed or keep checking back to see what's new. Yeah, you know, because you're trying to be on all of these different platforms that you're talking about. You want to run uh, AdWords campaigns. You want to run Facebook ads. You want to create content on all of on Facebook, on Instagram, and all these platforms. What's the what's the process for for managing all of that to make sure that you are generating enough content to get people to to keep coming back, or first to discover you and then to keep coming back? Yeah, each platform is different. Um, so in terms of content creation, this was actually um, one of our earliest ideas, which didn't prove to work until only maybe a year ago. Um, most of the content that, that we now put on Instagram is actually customer created. So um, people get very passionate about our guitars. Um, I think our branding promotes that. You know, we're our mantra, our hashtag is um, keep it close. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, no matter how busy you get, no matter where you are, don't allow your hobbies to kind of get lost in the past. You know, if you play guitar, then play guitar for five minutes a day. Don't let five months go by without you touching your guitar. Or, or if you go on a trip, to Costa Rica and you're worried about, you know, the, the temperature or humidity damaging your wooden guitar. Um, you know, we make a guitar that allows you to take it with you and bring that hobby with you. So, um, we promote that throughout all of our channels. And so when our customers get their guitar, many of them are thinking, awesome. I now have my close guitar and I'm going to take it with me to, this next place that I'm going to. And so a lot of our customers send us pictures of their trips. Um, and whenever someone says they have a trip, we always say, very cool, tell us about it afterwards. Uh, sometimes they, they write a blog post about it. Um, so our customers are very passionate, and, they're, and they are content creators too, and, and they're kind of mini brand ambassadors. Um, and in terms of scheduling everything, uh, we do some channels better than others. Uh, I won't pretend that we're an expert in everything. We're still uh, trying to figure out how to grow our Instagram even faster. Um, you know, there's so many different channels, and so many of them are different in very niche ways. You know, there's Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Each one should be approached uh, with a unique strategy. And um, right now, we're focusing on on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Pinterest and Twitter, we definitely need uh, some more work on those fronts. But yeah, in general, I think it's analyzing what does each platform offer, what who are, who are the most successful people on those platforms, what do they do well, how can we emulate that, and then we create our own strategy, and then it's just a matter of executing that strategy. That's typically how we approach each each different channel. Mm -hmm. So for the uh, customer created content, what is that usually in the form of? Is it, is it Instagram posts or a blog? What's usually the, the outcome? Uh, so oftentimes it's just images. Um, people will send us pictures from their most recent trip with them with the guitar or the guitar in nature. Um, sometimes uh, our... 
our more professional customers actually use the guitar on sets. Uh, and so they might have YouTube videos of them playing uh, at a gig with our guitar. Um, some, some of our customers are in, insane, to be honest. Um, they, so a few examples. One guy hiked or climbed the tallest mountain in North America, Denali, with his close guitar and played Stairway to Heaven at 21,000 feet. <laughs> and uh, so he sent us a picture. That was really incredible. And he also wrote a blog post about that. So we have a guest post on our website about him. Another another guy is sailing around the world with our guitar. Uh, one person biked from Montreal to San Diego, uh, 10,000 kilometers with our guitar. So So some of our customers, you know, they embody the brand that we've created and that, and that, to be honest, for me is the most humbling and amazing part, um, of starting this company at all, because for someone to understand the brand and then take it into their own hands and shape it to something that impacts their life, I think is, is kind of the goal of, of what every lifestyle brand, um, has. Mm. Yeah, I think these uh, in the wild photos that you're talking about are the most valuable and uh, the the best forms of content to get people to to trust the product that they're going to buy for the first time because it's a combination of like an unboxing video with a, a lifestyle that you can create with that particular product and like a review all wrapped together because it's produced by and it's also unbiased right because it's produced by by a customer so how did you it sounds like you took you try this approach a bunch of times, but it didn't really take off until about a year ago. What were you doing to encourage people to or encourage your customers to to share and create this kind of content? So in the very beginning, um, the reason, so this strategy we had right from the very beginning, but in the beginning, we didn't have any customers and we didn't have any guitars. <laughs> so, right. uh, so we had to wait until we had both of those to really start kind of enacting this, this plan. Um, but there are a few different ways. One in our, our newsletters and our crowdfunding updates, we always kind of promote, um, the brand and we, and we, and we request that people send us stuff and we tell them, um, you know, we, we will, if you want the exposure, we, we will post your stuff to our, uh, social media. So that's definitely, if that's something you're interested in, we're happy to help. Um, you, when customers email us specifically, oftentimes we'll have a chain back and forth about, uh, you know, someone says, Hey, I'm going to this place. I'm thinking of buying the guitar. Um, I have so-and-so a question. And then if they do become a customer, uh, I always say, you know, let us know how it goes on the trip. And so kind of building that personal relationship, um, definitely has been, I think the most successful. So when I've had personal contact with a customer going on some travel, uh, that's typically where we see the most images coming in. Um, and then just, you know, the website, the way we designed the website, the way all of our content is produced, I think what we're going for is creating this lifestyle brand that hopefully, um, people get. And then when they see that we have guest posts that also, nudges people more in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, you can get the ball rolling and start putting out these customer credit content pieces. People are going to be like, oh, I want to submit 
my content too because it's going to get this kind of exposure and you they want to it just looks cool right to be a part of something like that uh, and i think right. important that you're saying that you know try not to let the relationship with your customer just die off after they place an order to have that kind of follow-up because they you know obviously are giving you rewarding stories just because you're not hearing hearing about how people are taking your product and changing their lives with it. And then of course they're producing all this great content that you can share with your, your customer base, uh, after. And if you don't have any customers yet, which was the problem that you guys faced that you had to wait for customers to, to buy your product, to have enough of a, uh, a big enough pool for people to start producing this kind of content. You can always work or hire influencers, help replicate some of this. And I think that's something that you guys have done uh, recently, which is to work with established influencers to get the word out. Can you talk a little bit more about about this like how do you what kind of influencers are you working with yeah um so we there are many many guitar influencers on youtube um youtube i think is the biggest channel that we're kind of targeting with influencers uh and these youtubers do unboxing videos all the time they do demos and reviews of products um so Usually it's quite simple the way I approach it. It's just, uh, I try to find the influencers that have the most subscribers, the most views. Um, and someone who, when I watch their content, I think they do a really good job and, and I just reach out to them via their email uh, on YouTube. And I usually propose, Hey, we have this guitar. It's cool for these few reasons. Would you be interested in doing an unboxing? or a review or, or maybe incorporating it into your YouTube channel a little bit. And people have been very receptive, uh, to, to those reach out efforts. And I think now, I think there is a wider trend and, and you would, you'd know this better than I would since you talked to so many, uh, Shopify owners, but it seems like people are supporting smaller companies more and more. I think the, the vibe that I get is that people are trying to support their local brands. They're trying to support entrepreneurs more. It might be just because I'm now getting more and more into that space and I'm getting older that that seems like it. But, um, I think that effect is very useful. Uh, that trend is very useful for people like us. Uh, when we, when I reach out to people and I say, Hey, we have this new guitar. I think a lot of influencers, appreciate that people are still trying to innovate in the guitar space, which is very established and has many established players. Um, so people are receptive to it and, and it's really helped. I mean, if you see, uh, for example, our, our best review, um, is by this guy named Tony Policastro. He's, uh, he, he's done over 500 guitar reviews and he does them all the same and he plays all the same songs on all the guitars. And when you see that video, you get a very unbiased view and very unbiased um, explanation of the guitar. And that that is invaluable when it comes to trying to convince a potential customer uh, online if they should buy it or not. Mm, makes sense. So when I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense, which is about the smaller brands that are now 
popping up and people wanting to support them, I think a lot of times it comes down to that connection with a person behind the company, right? They have their own personal story and that resonates with, with a lot of uh, influencers, resonates with your customer base. I think that you can also see this a lot with the success in crowdfunding. I think you hear all the time or see all the time that the most successful campaigns are the ones where there's a, a, a founder story where people talk about why they're building something rather than what they're building or what product they're putting out there. So I think what you're saying has a lot of uh, merit and it goes back to being able to kind of level with the customer and be able to talk talk to them eye to eye. So I think that that's an advantage that more brands should take advantage of, which is I think, you know, you guys are certainly doing. So I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, your, your, you mentioned that you had a very clear vision and you set priorities from the very beginning. You mentioned to us that you knew that you would launch with a travel guitar, then ukulele, then full size guitar, go to crowdfunding, go to website sales, and eventually build a brand that people would save up, you know, months or years to, to purchase. Why that particular order of, of events? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I, to me, it seems very logical to, to go that route. And the reason being, um, the, the travel guitar was our first one, our first product. And that was a very applicable use case of carbon fiber. So, you know, the question of is a wooden travel guitar durable? No, it's not what that's the pain point. Um, what's the solution? boom, travel guitar. So that, that would really make sense. Um, and so we started there as far as product goes. And, and I always knew that once we develop all that expertise to make a ukulele is extremely similar. A ukulele is also a body, a soundboard and a neck, uh, slightly different design, but, um, same supply chain, same sourcing, same materials, very similar pitch. Uh, the ukulele is slightly different for us because it's a very premium price point, whereas our travel guitar price point is very average. So the average guitar price, uh, the, the average acoustic guitar price in the U.S. is around $450. And so our guitar being at 600 is not that high of a, of a deviation from the mean. And the average ukulele price is $70 and ours start at $440. So we're way above the average price point. Uh, so the pitch is a little bit different for the ukulele. And, and then for the full size guitar, that, so the carbon fiber definitely applies to the full size guitar as well, but slightly less because you're not going to be traveling with a full size guitar as much. So the pitch changes with the full-size guitar slightly uh, because rather than saying you would never travel um, with your wooden guitar, it's more, you know, a carbon fiber full-size guitar is going to be more resistant to temperature and humidity changes, and it's going to be a guitar that will look the same in 20 years. Um, We don't really pitch it as much as a travel guitar. Um, so, but the reason that we came out with the full size is because again, same supply chain, um, similar design. We already had all the resources and expert expertise to launch it. Um, and the acoustic full size guitar market is bigger than both the ukulele and travel size guitar market combined. So, so that was a very lucrative, uh, market expansion for us. 
so that's kind of the progression of instrument uh, instrument lines. And then as far as crowdfunding to Shopify to maybe eventually physical retail, that also has many advantages. So when you do crowdfunding, I, I think crowdfunding is one of the most amazing inventions for entrepreneurs in recent years because uh, if we were, so, so our first crowdfunding campaign raised 30,000 about, uh, the next one was 103 and then 303, 109, 135. And now our current full size guitar is at, I think 68 or so. Um, if we were to go to a bank and get a loan, then we would have the money up front, which is the same as crowdfunding. You get the money up front, but then we'd still have the challenge of proving a product market fit. And we'd still have to get customers who then give us feedback. Um, and crowdfunding, you get all that at once. You, you get all the money up front, you get the customers and you get a product market fit. And, and these customers, because they pre-ordered and because they have to wait, several months to get it, they get very excited about the product. And so they're extremely willing to give feedback. They're willing to leave reviews. They're willing to, you know, spread the word with word of mouth. Um, so that was, that was a no brainer for me as far as starting uh, the company with crowdfunding. And I think Shopify, so eventually once you get past that crowdfunding stage, um, you do have to have some sort of stable website sales to, to be sustainable. And so that's kind of where the Shopify stage comes in. And the reason that comes before physical retail in my mind is because one physical retailers need large inventory amounts, which most scrappy lean startups cannot afford the upfront capital to, to build, let's say a thousand guitars and distribute them to guitar center before those sales are made. Um, nor can they really support the the margin that they lose by going to retailers when they're very young. So re physical retail to me didn't make much sense in the beginning. Um, and Shopify and Shopify and, and then online store did make a lot of sense because you can advertise as you have more money. You can control that uh, demand a little bit. Um, you can scale at a at an organic and safe pace. You can never you never really uh, get outpaced on demand or supply uh, on an online store because you can kind of control it. So, so that's kind of how the progression works. And now that we're a bit more established online, now is the time I think to start looking towards physical retail because we do have the inventory, the capital, and the and the stable website sales to allow us to experiment with physical retail. Mm -hmm. So now that you're in this stage of, of uh, e-commerce, owning your own Shopify site, I want to talk a little bit about the site itself. Was the uh, the website designed in-house? Did you guys hire out for that? Uh, so we designed most of it ourselves. Um, we had the help of this one agency called uh, Sliced Bread. Um, they're based in LA and they're really good. They do a lot of stuff. Uh, from Google advertising to Facebook to website design. Uh, they're, they're a Shopify partner. Um, they, they're helping us with kind of a website audit, so more back-end Shopify stuff. Uh, as far as front-end goes, um, we designed that uh, ourselves, and you know, a lot of it was just the content, choosing a theme, 
was definitely stressful in the very beginning. It seems like a very big decision, um, which theme to choose just because there are hundreds of them. Um, we went with the turbo theme from out of the sandbox, which was a very robust, um, theme that, that didn't have to be modified too much to fit our needs. Um, we also had the help of, um, there, there is an app that's not yet released. Uh, it's called crowd control. It, it basically combines, uh, Shopify and crowdfunding. So if you have a crowdfunding campaign, you can then transfer your customers to your Shopify site and uh, sell them add-ons and accessories uh, on your store rather than going through uh, CrowdOx and BackerKit or two other popular sites that do that as well. Um, the owner of that app, uh, Jason, he, he helped a little bit with the developing of the custom features on our site as well. Nice. What, what other applications do you use on your Shopify site? So we don't use a ton. Uh, I think that's definitely an area, uh, you know, I've listened actually to some of the other podcasts, um, that you've done and I've heard some really good suggestions on there. Uh, one that I really like is called just, Uno. that's a pop-up, uh, pop-up app that you can customize and design really neat pop-ups very quickly. Um, and you can also send emails through there. Uh, we use QuickBooks, but that's not the, <laughs> that's not the sexiest app. That's more backend <laughs> accounting. We, we have used Recart. And that's for like uh, cart abandonment recovery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, abandoned cart, um, abandonment, you can, you can, uh, you can create three emails with them that go out uh, and you can plan each one differently. You can time it, mess, change the messaging mm-hmm. accordingly. Yeah. Is there a certain timing that works well for you? Uh, I don't really have any fast rule or, uh, necessarily data that proves one time better than another. I think in general, um, it's good to have a follow-up very shortly after someone abandons a cart. So maybe one to two hours, and then you want to remind them after a period of time, um, where you're sort of out of sight, out of mind. So maybe a day later, and then if that doesn't work, uh, sort of a last ditch effort, maybe three to four days later. That's kind of how I've spaced it, but I could see other timeframes working as well. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time, Adam. So closeguitars.com is a website, K-L-O-S-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.com. So I know that you have uh, crowdfunding campaigns going on. What other goals do you have for, for this year? Uh, so we've never had a, a holiday season yet where we've been completely prepared. So I'm most looking forward to, to holiday season where we have inventory and we have budget to advertise. Uh, that'll be a first for us. Um, and, and then also the physical retail expansion. Um, so we're launching in San Francisco, uh, Santa Monica, Houston, Austin, and Seattle in uh five beta stores so it's b8ta uh so i'm very excited to to see what happens in those stores and if that is effective then then we might be pursuing physical retail more and uh and we have a big trade show on the horizon at the end of june um in nashville which is kind of the hub of of music and guitar 
Uh, and so we'll see, we'll see how our interactions with retailers go there. And, and yeah, potentially by the end of the year, we might have um, a fairly big number of, of physical retailers. So a lot of different things going on. And I'm also uh, excited to get the ukulele and the full-size guitar on our Shopify site. Uh, right now, they're just in the pre-order phase. So I think come August, those will be readily available uh, so yeah, a lot of different things we're working on, but all of them are exciting. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for your time, Adam. Yeah, thank you, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. I mean, there's still times now where there's like a little bit of self-doubt. Like, is this the real thing? There's, I don't think there's ever a moment of pure clarity. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.